Grosso from Vancouver to win it for Canada! Canada came! Canada conquered! Canada gold! Buchanan with the cross in towards Alfonso Davies! Canada's history-making moment delivered by their biggest superstar! A goal the country has been dreaming about for decades! Finally arrives! You're listening to the Northern Football Podcast with Peter Galindo. Alexander Gongay-Rujic and your host, Ben Steiner. Welcome back into Northern Football Podcast. It's episode 122 of NFB. Ben Steiner alongside Peter Galindo and Alex Gongay-Rujic. And we're back in person as well today. We're recording outside, so apologies if there is any ambient noise. It's pretty calming Uh, out here, though, to be fair. It's not bad. It is quite relaxing. It's a great place to do a podcast. We should do this more often. Make sure to follow us at Northern Football on every social media and rate, review, and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Back in person. It's been a while. Uh, Certainly nicer than downtown Toronto. Very nice. And we have confirmation that Shaughnessy Ben does indeed exist. So that's always good as well. Yeah, shout out to to Shaughnessy Ben and shout out to our fourth guest today on the podcast who's uh, chilling, but we'll get to make an appearance. That is uh, Ben's new best friend. Ben's best friend, one would say. I got a new dog. Uh, I guess that's exciting. Most of you have probably seen him on Twitter uh, or my Instagram. He's been on have. several posts. Um, He's as cute as he looks in the photos. Yeah, actually cuter, if that's even possible. Yeah. He might uh, might pick the Canadian Championship semifinals later tonight, actually. Oh, nice. There Let's you get go. Him do it live on the put, show. Put him on the stairwell up there and just have him knock some beach balls down or something. You're going to have to make it something original now. Yeah. But... It's not the NHL Corgi. Anyways, getting into Canadian soccer and Canada released their Nations League preliminary roster. A 53-man preliminary squad were named earlier this week. Notable inclusions included Tom McGill, Jonathan Sirwa, Jason Russell-Rowe, Sean Rea, Ryan Raposo, Luca Petrasso, Luca Coliosho, Lucas McNaughton, DeAndre Kerr, Mathieu Chouinière, Moise Bombito, Ali Ahmed, and the big one, Aiden Morris of the Columbus crew, who is certainly... Interesting, because not many people knew that he was Canadian, but notable exclusions, Mo Farsi, Didi Nabzi, Nico Sigur, Marco Bustos, and a few other dual nationals. Yeah, I think it was something where it was a bit of a surprise, I suppose, in the sense of timing, but the nice thing is about CONCACAF official opposition or competition is that they have these specific dates. So obviously on Friday was the... Preliminary squad release up to 60 players, so obviously a bit of a surprise not to see Canada name all 60, but it's also something where, I mean, we were asked about it as well, but it's up to preference, right? Mexico named 40. If you know who your group is, you almost don't need to fart around the bush a bit, but also if you want to mess with people, like, same way one John Herdman put Daniel Jebison on his Gold Cup preliminary squad list in 2021, it can be as much an exercise of... You know, safety if you need a player or two to fill in. Really, you don't need more than a 30-player uh, preliminary squad. So it is a fun exercise to kind of see where players are at. And, and also, we also we learned some great things in terms of just where some players are at with their thinking, or if, if they're ready to commit to the national team, if they're in discussion. So uh, it was certainly, it's always interesting for that in preliminary list. There's not much else to take away because it's, you know, again, such a long list. And obviously, a lot of names aren't necessarily strategic. They're just... Uh, in the sense for helping you on the pitch, it's more often off the pitch, and but that's also what uh, what us nerds love to get stuck into. Really, all it is is when national teams are arranging their final squads, they will send out invites or feelers to 
let's just throw in an example here, 40 guys, right? And then they kind of gauge whether they are interested in coming or if they're available to come, they speak to the clubs and then they kind of whittle the list down from there. So really the only difference now is that you actually see the whole process being kind of played out in public in terms of this is the player pool that they're going to get to choose from for this tournament. And they want to keep their options open as well. So you're naming the players that you know you're probably going to call up and even ones that might be a little bit tentative on actually coming, but you want to keep that option open and that's what these rosters are here for. Yeah, well, but I guess also on the flip side, it's you, I guess you see what guys are you know committed. It is a weird process because you can technically put players on, but you have to have discussions because as we saw, you know, there's a few names who I would have put on, but obviously those players aren't ready to commit. It, yeah, it just gives you kind of maybe a, a free idea of, of where certain players are at in the pool. And uh, yeah, I guess it was, you know, interesting to see how many MLS guys, a few less European guys than I thought there'd be. Like, again, no Marco Bustos was a bit of a surprise given his form. And you have a free spot. It's not like he's considering anywhere else. I mean, I guess he'd probably consider an Italy call uh, if that were ever to, to come. But obviously Marco Bustos would be a good, you know, look for Canada. But you know, also, you see, uh, you know, no CPL guys. Again, it's something where it's like lots of MLS players, of course, to go to. But surprise, not one or one or two names was uh, thrown on the list just because. And the question from Shane Wagoner at Wayne Shagoner. A lot of U.S. fans are treating Fuller and Balagoon as a guaranteed global superstar, dismissing the potential of Aiden Morris. What do you think of Morris's ceiling? And what is the kind of role that he could have long term with either national team, Canada or the U.S.? And to Peter, how are his hips? Well, the hips don't lie, that's for sure. A um, lot to like there. But uh, in terms of his ceiling, and maybe I'm being a little bit hyperbolic here just because he's potentially going to commit to Canada, um, but I do see a lot of similarities between himself and Stefan Ashtakio. Not just because they're both solid, destroy, and progress number sixes, not because they are both strong defensively, have good vision, and are very technically gifted, but it's also the little details in their game, which I did write about in the last Canadians Abroad Roundup that I did, in that they're constantly surveying the pitch for things like passing options maybe five seconds before they get the ball, or they're surveying the pitch to get themselves in a position of all right, I can receive a pass here, but then let's say the ball doesn't get to me. So-and-so could be a real threat in transition for the opposition. So I'm going to position myself here so that if we lose the ball in this area, I'm there to make the quick stop and prevent the counterattack. Just little things like that. Um, you can see he's very aware in that regard. And honestly, especially in the modern game, that is why players like Aiden Morris are so coveted now because they can do a little bit of everything. And the eye test backs up everything. The underlying numbers back up everything. He really is a quality player. And the fact that he's also got an Italian passport as well could really help facilitate a move to Europe in the next year or two because he ha absolutely has that potential to go over there. And like Astacchio, he started to really break out in his age 21 season when he was with Chavish. And now we're seeing Aiden Morris in his age 21 season really starting to break out now with Columbus. Yeah, I mean, Aiden, Nor uh, Aiden Morris has been someone I've been following for a minute now. Obviously, he made that his famed debut now in the MLS Cup Final in 2020 and ended up winning. Yeah, the, immediately what stood out, I think at the time he must have been, yeah, 19, 18. He just immediately yeah. looked the level, uh, you know, in a big final mm -hmm. um, at home, if I'm not mistaken, as well for, for Columbus. Yes. It, it was yes. in front of his home crowd. He looked very composed and, you know, was more of a defensive profile. And I think what's been fascinating is I've had a chance, obviously, nice thing is about him playing for Columbus. There just happens to be Mo Farsi and Jason Russell Rowe there. So 
having watched Farsi, I'd always been impressed. One thing I've noticed when watching Columbus games is just Morris has a good eye for some of these late runs he makes in the box. Even when he, obviously, he scored a few of those late runs and those stood out seeing just these positions he gets into, even when he doesn't score. I think he, he's shown good awareness with Will Fernandes. He'd be like, okay, go do a little more in the final third. He's kind of shown an immediate knack for it, like even beyond things that you can't teach. And I think the fact that at 18, he showed the composure he did on the ball. He's shown what he can do defensively. He's also shown this you know, knack for finding space in the final third. Uh, and I think now that you look also just at his numbers and the way he's kind of put that all together in a package, I just see... The versatility and flexibility that you'd want out of your midfielder, someone who can, you know, find space, do well on the ball, and defend. He ticks off all the boxes in that regard. So as for his ceiling, I'd say he has a pretty solid ceiling. I think you have to 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 look at you know at his age twenty one. Yeah, it's maybe a bit older, um, but it's also quite young. Like it's something where I think if he has another strong MLS season or two, he could still head head to Europe at 21, 22, 23. Uh, you know, that's, you know, similar age to a guy, I guess, like Tyler Adams when he went. Uh, Tyler Adams might have been just a bit younger, if I'm not mistaken, when he uh, he went over. But uh, still, I think he's someone where he does have a high ceiling. I think, of course, a guy like Balogun, it's a different story because the U.S. desperately needed a number nine of top five leagues caliber because I think this this year they barely had anyone score in top five leagues and Balogun Correct. immediately gave them 20 top five or tier one goals, I guess, as we yeah. as we like to call them. So that was obviously uh, a huge, and the U.S. needed that. Whereas in midfield, you look at you know Eunice Musa, Tyler Adams, Wes McKenney. That's three top tier one midfielders. You add Luca De La Torre. Mm-hmm. You add in some of these uh, you know other p- profiles even within MLS are guys that just left like Georgi Mihailovic. More of a ten to be fair, not competing directly, um, but still you also look like a guy Eric Williamson. Obviously, he had, he's had the knee injuries, but he's someone who. Long term, the U.S. has been a fan of, and I, I'd agree because he's a great midfielder. Whereas with Canada, it's beyond Kone and Ustakio. It's really open long term because you know Atiba Hutchinson isn't, uh, you know, he's he's kind of last tournament here going on, and Mark Anthony Kane and Jonathan Azorio are pushing the wrong side of twenty or thirty, and are you know are in their thirties in the case of Azorio. Uh, so a guy like Morris certainly uh, is a big fit for for Canada's midfield depth long term and has a good ceiling. So that's all exciting. And from Nick's spirit, why would Mo Farsi not accept a Canadian call-up? Are his chances for playing for Algeria that much better? I think it's something where it's just like, there's. An, I guess, obviously he doesn't feel a need to be boxed in. Because, yeah, it's something where Algeria's full-back depth isn't much better. They've got a couple players playing in Tier 1 leagues. Albeit, you got a guy like Yusuf Atal who's darting that mix. And he's a bit of a weird one because he kind of plays all over the pitch. Plays, you know, out, out wide, up front. Uh, but also plays fullback, so I don't know, you know, for Algeria what he's going to be playing long term. Because I'd see him, if anything, more of a winger. It kind of guess it's the same debate they have there with Alfonso Davies. But basically, for Farsi with Canada, the, the hierarchy is pretty tough in front of him. It's if you're assuming Canada sticks with a back three, it's you know you're going up against the likes of Tejon Buchanan, Richie Larea, um, Alistair Johnston just at the top, right? And and you know maybe yeah you could be the fourth guy, but the thing is. Larea is still young-ish, like he's 27, and he's kind of been a late bloomer. Buchanan's still in his early to mid-20s. Johnson is still in his early to mid-20s. Canada's churning out fullbacks at whatever rate. Uh, it's something where it's like, if he, if he feels like he's not going to get a call right away, which, again, it's despite his form, it's just because of those names, you don't see him getting a call right away. It makes sense to, to wait and assess. Maybe some injuries happen. Maybe some guys fall out. 
and I, I guess it is a bit surprising he didn't at least let himself get included on the list because there's no cost for him to do that. But obviously he wants to keep his future open and you know, fair play to him for, for that. And I think it's one for Canada where, look, it's obviously you're frustrated because you want to get every dual national possible, but it's a position of strength. So you're not sitting there losing sleep. Whereas like an Aiden Morris, like you mentioned, there's a clear hierarchy. You could argue by within a year, you could see a path for him starting with Mo Farsi. He'd ha- a lot would have to go right for him between now and then for him to be starting. And that's not a knock on Farsi. That's just more of an indication of where the, the Canada is at with their right wing back and overall wing back positions. I'm from Stutch at Paul Stutch Lennon. Any particular reason why we didn't name 60 players to the provisional list? Has there been any talk with Nico Seeger? And would Brandon Cambridge have been on the list had his two-goal performance happened a week earlier? I mean, in terms of the 60, it is a good question. I feel like it's something where, obviously, you'd want to fill all the spots, but maybe it's something where there are situations like Farsi where, you know, player wasn't ready uh, to commit, although I guess you suppose you could have always filled it out with CPL players. Again, I guess kind of like leading off the top of the show, what we said, it's just it's such a long list. It's something where it's like at a certain point, once you get past 40, 45, it's more just maybe dual nationals you've had positive conversations with. Maybe it's some youngsters that, you know, who could pop off with in the next month ago, month or now, which I guess you could throw Seeger and Cambridge into that list. But I think for Seeger, it's something where at his age, U19, he's still eligible for, for Croatia's youth teams I have a feeling he's just going to want to stick with that for now like again kind of like what we've seen with the Jebison whereas you're not ready to commit you can just keep playing and you know still commit to Canada or Croatia either way down the road as for Cambridge it's a great question because he does have that Canadian passport he has been balling out for Charlotte Uh, he has been a very late arrival on the scene so I do wonder if something where these lists of course they get released on the Friday it is probably submitted a week or two or three weeks before he genuinely had his big performances between those weeks where maybe just those conversations weren't had yet and maybe we'll see him pop up on a gold cup list, for example, because that's going to be more MLS heavy. He's someone whose name would have popped up even before this big performance because uh, he was getting those minutes off the bench and you know, and you see him and some of these other guys getting those looks. You, you can only be intrigued by that. I mean, when you're playing regular minutes in MLS, you're going to be in the Canada D conversation almost without a doubt. Like there sure are players who are not necessarily in that conversation anymore because they've kind of aged out of the program has moved past them. Um, thinking players like Russell Tybert, for example, uh, <laughs> where the program has kind of moved past them. And I think Samuel Piet could be caught up in that in the near future. But when you're in MLS, you're playing in a pretty well top tier that if you have a good run of form, you're going to get that opportunity um, with the Canadian national team. It just seems like MLS is at a level where if you're getting minutes and you're performing at a high level, you're going to at least get a top 60 sort of nomination. But that also leads into our next question from Dan Clark. Uh, with the provisional list for the CanMNT released, is it surprising that no current CPL players were included? And is that any indication more that Herdman wanted to keep the list short or a bigger commentary on the quality of the CPL? On the quality of the CPL, I think there is a detail that we're kind of missing here. And it's that there were six CPL alumni named that preliminary squad. When you look at the names, they were Dominic Zator, Lucas McNaughton, Joel Waterman, and Victor Loturi, and then Sean Ray and Jonathan Sirwa. Yes, they were Montreal contracted players, but they spent considerable time with Valor and really sharpened their skills with Valor and got these opportunities because of their CPL loans and how well they did there. So you can definitely make the argument that every single one of those players 
use the CPL and I use used kind of loosely here, but they capitalize on the CPL and that was a springboard to them getting these opportunities. Would Lucas McNaughton have been signed by Toronto FC, landed in Nashville, become a starter for one of the top defensive teams in the league if Pacific didn't take a chance on him? Probably not. Ditto for Joel Waterman. As quality of a player as he was, would he have gotten to this point in his career if he didn't sign for Calvary? Probably not. We could go through the whole list of, of all six of those guys. So you're already seeing in season number five of the league with two of those years and part of 2022 being affected as well because of Omicron. We were just coming out of the latter stages of that. The fact that you are only in year five, you dealt with the pandemic and you're already producing five, six guys from the CPL into the national team. That's exactly what the league was created for was to create a pipeline and it's already happening. So that's, that's honestly like that is the one thing that we probably should look at in terms of it's doing its job. Are you going to see CPL players right away making the jump? Probably not. No, but it is doing its job in that regard. So for sure, I think it does not a reflection at all on the CPL's quality. Exactly. I think that's something that can be forgotten. Like, these players that are named are still feathers in the cap of the CPL. And that's what the CPL is here for is to provide those opportunities. So I don't necessarily think it's like short-sighted not to call up guys from the CPL because it's not at that level. It simply isn't. You're not bringing in starters to the Can MNT who are playing big minutes currently in the CPL. It's just not where the league's at. It's not necessarily what the league's for, because if that's the case, well, you're not looking at a very competitive Can MNT on the world stage, right? So that's what the league's for. It's for the development. I think, they can use those players as very much like come to our league. It can help you develop towards getting to Europe, towards getting to MLS, towards getting to the national team. But I remember having the conversation with Alex in the first year of the CPL. And we were talking like, who do you think from this league could land on the national team within the next few years? And the thought wasn't that he was going to get called up from York nine at the time uh, to the national team, but you mentioned Max Ferrari and taking that step towards potentially moving up and, and getting onto the national team. So it's not Max Ferrari, but it's definitely of that sort of same blueprint that was laid out really at the beginning of the league. I think if anything, that what we're forgetting is more of an indictment of the quality of the pool. Because I think the fact that you have 53 players named and they're all Europe-based or MLS-based and there's still seven slots, now that I think out loud, I do wonder if those seven slots were maybe reserved for guys like Farsi who ended up declining and... You know, it kind of ends up one of those things where you just, you put, you pursued them. It's one of those where, again, it's so long, you're kind of like, okay, do I really need to fill this list? Because, uh, so, so yeah, I'd say it's just really the quality of the pool. Because, again, we're talking about guys like Brandon Cambridge missing out. We're talking about Marco Bustos not being on the list. Like, those are guys where, if those are guys not even cracking your 55 players in your pool, that gives you an indication of how deep the pool is. And, so if anything, I just think it shows how deep the, the Canada's pool has gotten. And I think now the next step for, for the CPL is just going to keep growing. And, you know, we'll, it'll be interesting to see if at a certain point they'll be able to kind of push closer that discussion with MLS so that a guy who's dominating in the CPL, there's more of a, a, a national team player there than someone who's maybe in MLS but kind of really on the fringes, whereas now it's still, okay, if you're in the fringes of the MLS – that's going to get you higher up. So I'd say it's just interesting to see uh, how that develops, especially as the CPL skews younger. Because I'm thinking of a player like TJ Tahit, for example, like 16. Uh, that's someone where we're talking about a player who's going to be 
what, 20 by the time the next cycle starts for the next World Cup. And if he's still in the CPL and dominating, who knows what the league's going to look like in four years. So I'd say it's a mix of the league, of course, still being very young and also just where the pool is at. The pool is very deep and it's something where there's a reason why a guy like Matthew Schoenier has been doing very well in MLS for a couple of seasons now and he still hasn't had that taste of the national team. Like it's something where the pool has genuinely grown a lot in front of our eyes and it's the, you know, if this if I'm sure if it was four years ago, a guy like Sean Young with his performances, he'd be in a preliminary list, but it shows how far the national team has also come in four years. And from Fraser D on form, not goodwill, who deserves a spot on the CanMNT for the summer games? I presume he's talking about Gold Cup. I mean, Matthias Warnier is kind of top of mind, top of just midfield profile, doing well, um, good to, to, to see those sorts of performances. Um, from him, I mean, otherwise Jacob Schaffelberg continues to score goals. Is you know could be thrown in that mix up front. I mean, we've we've talked a bit as well about you know a guy like Charles Andreas Brim and the strong end he's had to his year. He'd certainly have to be uh, thrown into that mix as well. I mean, other than those names, uh, a lot of those guys are all they're already regular. I guess Dominic Zatori can throw in that discussion just because he's kept up his uh, strong play since last camp. Um, I, I'd probably th- put those four. You could maybe, uh, I'd be curious to see where a guy like uh, Lucas McNaughton could fit in that whole discussion. Just saying if Kyle Hebert did get a call last camp, he's cooled down a tad, whereas a guy like Lucas McNaughton's really heated up. Like, it could be something where maybe if we see some energy or injuries to center backs, a guy like McNaughton could slip in because he's already had that, that, those previous calls. So maybe those are a handful of guys that I could see uh, either making it in directly like Schwanier and Schaffelberg probably could, and then maybe some guys like McNaughton and, and Zator and whatnot could be on the cusp based on uh, how the roster is shaping up with injuries in form. And from Johnny Lower at J on the spot 12, do you think players that are still injured and likely won't be match fit for the Nations League should still be called up like Azorio and Piet? Panama isn't Croatia, but I think bubble players won't perform any worse than the half-injured ones. I think it's something where you still have to call in your core guys. I think it's something where it's a big tournament for uh, for them. You know, it's almost kind of like a last dance of a sort in terms of just going out and winning a trophy together. I think also guys like Azorio and Piet are key for the next cycle. Maybe it's a different situation if we're talking some of the older players but I do think again someone like Azorio and Piet do have value for for the next cycle so yeah I think I, I could see them still get called up I think it's something where as long as you have 18 regulars that are fit and that are in good form that you can trust because you know it is just two games across a very quick turnaround you won't need to empty your bench too much uh, and then of course you, you get some young hungry guys to round out your roster you could still fit in uh, you know like so Piet and Azorio and I think a guy like Azorio has shown that even if he's half fit you know, he came to the World Cup after barely playing and he just dealt with all his head injuries and whatnot. He still looked more than up to that, that you know, that World Cup level. Uh, of course, when paired in a trio versus a, in a pivot. So I think as long as Canada, uh, John Herdman goes about it the right way. And guys like Azorian Piet, certainly I'd have no issues. If we're talking, I don't know, maybe if someone like Vittoria picks up a knock, knock on wood, because obviously you don't want something like to happen. Maybe that's a different discussion. But certainly for Azorian Piet, I'd say so. And from David Anthony, A underscore Miller 16, how do you think Canada should line up against Panama in the upcoming Nations League semifinal? Can't take them lately, and do you expect David Watherspoon to play any sort of role for Canada this summer? Well, how do I hope they line up? I hope they keep that 3-5-2 going. I think Panama's shown 
a good amount of quality in their midfield in their la that last cycle. Uh, they really took a big step forward, and, and you know they still got some some good wide threats. And I think for Canada, as we saw, it kind of maximizes what they're good at as well. So I'd like to see something very similar to what we saw last window, and that you get Laren and David in form, leading the line, give you some goals. You get that trio, so you can just control games. You know, Kone and Stakio are, are fit. The question is, who do you pair alongside them? Like, will Osorio be fit? You know, are you able to poach an Aiden Morris and slot him right in? Because uh, based on his profile, I think he could do a job there. Uh, you know, if not, things do get a little like, okay, who is that third guy? Is it Atiba Hutchinson? You know, given that he hasn't played as much, is it Latori? Do you throw him into the wolf? So, to be fair, this three-five-two does is very Osorio slash Morris dependent. So I guess you could also throw Mark Anthony K in. Um, but, you know, it would be a very different ask from what he plays for TFC. As for the wingbacks, I love the idea of just, of course, if he's fit, unleashing him more. Alfonso Davies at wingback, so he can kind of just do everything he's good at, which is on both sides of the ball. Ditto with, you know, either Tejan Buchanan, Richie Larea. I'd say for Panama, go Richie Larea, just because they do have some some good wide threats. And then a, a back three, uh, you know, assuming they're healthy, is Johnston, Vittoria, Cornelius, because Cornelius has been, uh, been balling out. And... Boyan and goal because he's pretty much the the guy it feels like until at least these after these tournaments his position's gonna be a bit more up in the air maybe for the gold cup even and from africans at africans hypothetical situation you've been told you can only bring five players from the men's world cup squad to the gold cup which five do you prioritize in this hypothetical situation i mean taking a look at that i would say kyle laren is among them for me um given the form that he's been on with real valladolid uh scoring against barcelona earlier today alfonso davies He's Alfonso Davies. You can't really leave him off. Stefan Estacchio, um, he's critical to Canada's midfield. And I think alongside another one of my players that I'll call up, Ishmael Kone, as well as Alistair Johnston. And while Johnston might not sort of scream major impact, because he is not in a major impacting position for the Canada MNT, like sure he plays a big role, but I think just having him in, in that group is extremely valuable. So my five, Laren, Davies, Estacchio, Kone, and Johnston. I'm going to go for five, because I think for me this Gold Cup... Assuming, say, you win the Nations League in this hypothetical scenario, or at least do very well, I'd see this Gold Cup as more of a springboard for Copa America and 25 Gold Cup and World Cup. So I want guys to go and, you know, be be the dogs at that, that Gold Cup, to be the main guys. Be the Tejon Buchanan's, in other words. Exactly. So I think it's something where, of course, you'd want to go name all the five best players and, and go from there. But I think I'd probably go Kone, just because, again, he's young and hasn't had that chance to be the guy. So I'd want to got him in midfield. I'd probably throw in uh, Dane Sinclair in that, just so he can be that guy and someone where if you're looking at him long term, at least see what he's able to do, uh, you know, in the net in that sort of position. I'd arguably throw Ikeubo. Obviously, his club situation makes it a little less, but I think it'd be nice just to see him lead the line for a couple of games, kind of allow him to build that chemistry, be be that guy in more than just sporadic. Um, minutes i'd bring in alfonso davies just because again you want like a player of that caliber just to kind of be a leader for him would if anything my ask of him would be to be more of a leader be like the leader of a you know a team where there's not that boria not that hutchinson not those older guys around so i'd throw in davies as a fourth uh and then from there as a fifth i'd have Derek cornelius just because uh, i think it's something where he started to show that he can be the guy for malma and when he was already 19 20 21 making his for first foray into to the Canem and T he showed he could be a bit of that guy and then he kind of fell 
through, uh, you know, with uh, the, how the, his stint at the Whitecaps went and then Vittoria and everyone kind of passed him. So I want to see Cornelius kind of take what he's learned since and the ups and downs and especially at Malmo where he's been flying and be the guy. So those kind of would be my five, uh, which I guess I said St. Clair, Kone, Ugbo, Cornelius, and, and then Davies. And from Steve at Binatch2, who is potentially playing their last games this June and July in a Canaman t-shirt not named Atiba Hutchinson? My mind goes to Stephen Vittoria. I'm sure he's in great form and sure he's been playing well at an advanced age in football playing terms, but 36 years old, Canada has potential up-and-comers at centre-back. I could see him playing his final games with the Canada team. I'd have to agree for Vittoria. I, I just think it's something where Borean, it's harder to say just because I guess there's St. Clair and Crepo, but there's still room for Borean to kind of be a third goalkeeper long term and not saying Vittoria can't play that role but you look at the up and coming center backs all of a sudden you got more and more CPLers and MLSers popping up out of nowhere it could be something where genuinely a blink of an instinct he loses a starting spot through Cornelius and Miller and Johnson all these guys stepping up and Kennedy and then from there all of a sudden guys like Hebert and Bombito and you know Zator continue to push in the mix McNaughton and all of a sudden he kind of just fades out quickly the only thing that I'd say that's whole, you know that makes me hesitate is just he's playing at a very good level in one of the top leagues in Europe. The Portuguese league is still, I think, by coefficients, like the seventh best league in Europe after Fair the Dutch league. Yeah. So there, it's it's something where that's where I'm like I hesitate to say Vitoria, but yeah, really for the most part, Canada. So many of Canada's guys are in an age where even a guy like Azorio again, who's thirty, he's someone who I could still see playing in four years and still be in that mix. So I'd be hard to say this is Osorio's last camp. Even a guy like, you know, Mark Anthony Kay or, uh, you know, who's 28 or, you know, some of these guys are 28. I could still see them playing in, in four years. So really, like, yeah, I mean, again, Junior Harlot, the way he's he's aged is aged magnificently. Like, maybe David Weatherspoon, if he gets called up, then, I, yeah, again, I think it's something where after his knee injury and just the way it's gone, it, you know, someone where Canada would... Just long term, you're gonna see who's gonna come up in the midfield. It's gonna be hard to see where uh, he fits in long term. But, but yeah, I guess maybe Daniel Henry throwing that mix as well, similar vein as his team Victoria. And from Montrealer at Inter Montrealer, is there any chance Canada plays any friendlies before the Nations League games? I feel like we're gonna miss out on preparing for the semifinal and revenue. There's no chance. It's so soon. There's been no planning. The opposition isn't there. There's not a chance Canada plays any preparation games. Like, 11 aside from training, sure, but not in front of a crowd. There's no time. That's the thing. There's Players no time. arrive at different times, too. Guys are in season. Guys just finish their seasons. Guys finish their seasons a month prior. It's really hard to coordinate all that. Well, it's a Nations League, and it's a proper FIFA window, so it means, like, they're only going to get released, like, six, seven days before, because it's not like a... A week before, pretty much. It, yeah. It's not going to be like a Gold Cup or a tournament where you get that extra week to fit in a friendly game or two. Like, there's generally just going to be no time, and because uh, either you... Yeah, pretty much because it's a double window, right? Like, you're playing right, right as early as you can in that window. And I wouldn't be so surprised if we hear that Canada's played, like, the UNLV men's soccer team or something. Like, they've played <laughs> U of T at several times when they've yeah. they've had camps in Toronto. So, like... I'm sure they will play matches with their 11, but it won't be like taking on Honduras at BMO Field as a prep game or something like that. Like, that's just not going to happen. But getting into the Canadian Championship, semifinals this Wednesday, Montreal against Forge as 
they get set to go head-to-head for the third time. Pacific against Vancouver as well in a Ferryside Derby. Episode 2 of that, Pacific getting the better of Vancouver in the first match in that back in 2021. But quick predictions and things to watch. I say Forge gets past Montreal and Vancouver gets past Pacific. I think both are going to be incredibly tight games. Man so tight, as they say. And I do think the Forge... Almost like a playoff game. Yeah, almost like a playoff game. Almost like a semifinal in a cup competition. Um, Shout out Francesco Aquilini. Anyway. um, And Mike Martinago. And Mike Martinago, yes. Um, I think Forge in Montreal goes to penalties, just like in 2021. From there, I think Montreal edges it, but it's going to be a very closely contested game. If you had asked me prior to that Seattle game, is Vancouver going to beat Pacific? I would have been pretty pessimistic about that. Now, I understand they're traveling away, but away in the Canadian Championship, they've done pretty well against CPL opposition since that fateful day in Langford in 2021. So I think Vancouver edges it, but again, that's going to be another closely contested match because as I wrote on one soccer, the narrow pitch is really going to help Pacific. They're going to be very aggressive with their pressing. They're an energetic team. It's really going to come down to, and I hate to use the the old hockey cliche, but who wants it more? Who's going to be fighting for the ball more? Who's going to be fighting for the 50-50s and winning the second phases more? Because I feel like whoever gets the upper hand in that department is probably going to end up winning. Portland and Dallas got the upper hand against Vancouver in both of their games recently and won, not comfortably, but they were able to get the decisive goals and, and were able to shut down Vancouver's attack decently well in the case of Dallas. Portland, not so much. Vancouver just didn't have their finishing boots on that day. Stop me if you've heard that before this season. So I feel like those are going to be the factors that will affect that game. So you're saying fine lines. How analytical of you. Exactly. Dog. I know. <laughs> just what That's... Uh, but the, this matchup's tough. I think on paper, I just I still, I still see a Vancouver-Montreal final just in the sense that Montreal Forge is prime for the upset, but I just think Montreal playing on grass at home, it's like we saw last year. Like, it was just Forge was in a good vein of form. It was just not close, and I think that's kind of been the big disadvantage is playing away, especially for teams like Montreal or Vancouver, or, you know, or Toronto, who have such a defined way of playing, and, you know, it's something where the CPL teams might not be used to that. So I'd say because of form you and the level of teams, you'd argue Forge is the bigger upset potential for versus Montreal, but I just see the home advantage. I see something where it's like Montreal gets like a 1-0 or a 2-1 just because of them being at home. And then as for Vancouver Pacific, I see, again, Pacific has the home field advantage. It's narrow, the turf, they're used to it. They have that advantage, and they're a deep team. They rested Aparicio, Merjigir, and Didic for this game, as well as Kakuna Mane, interestingly enough. Might we see him future against his old team, but... On the flip side, the Whitecaps are in very good form. They're also deep. You know, it's something where one thing that hurt them when they played Ferryside 1.0 is that, yes, they were doing great in MLS play, but that was because they were rolling out their 11 week after week, and then they kept that same starting 11 for Ferryside, and, you know, plus the three Canadians, and they just collapsed. Whereas there was a bit of worry about that heading in this weekend, but the fact that they played Seattle and rested Gressel, rested Schopf, you know, rested a, a bunch of key regulars 
and still got a result. It just shows how much different the depth is. And I think that's going to be a big game changer that you're going to have a fresh Gressel and whatnot. Because when they did Ferryside 1.0, yeah, they started Gold and White and, you know, Dahomey and all these guys. But, you know, especially their defenders were tired because at that point they were playing a lot of, you know. They have rotated well leading into this game. Like, it has come at the cost of a couple results, but it also goes to show you they're taking it seriously, as they should, right? So I think the bigger upset potential, I'd argue, is Pacific Vancouver just because, again, I think it's home field advantage. But I I just think it's something where the Whitecaps depth makes me hard to suggest. It's like, like, Ferryside last time, you could almost argue it was 50-50. It felt like it. It was like, oh, like... Pacific, obviously Whitecaps were in good form, but you just felt something was off about them. Something didn't pass the smell test. This time around, like, they passed the smell test would be more. It's just something where it's harder to predict an upset because of that. How analytical of you. Smell tests. Smell tests. Dog tests. It's the cup. There's no analytics. It's the magic of the the cup, cup, guys. It's the magic of the cup. Pacific 3-1. Book it. And from Paul Roche at Dreamsicle, should the minimum Canadian starters of three be increased? I want to see the rules updated to say a minimum of six on the field at all times. It would be chaos for some of the MLS teams, especially the Whitecaps, but it would certainly lead to a lot more upsets. I'd be down for maybe minimum three Canadians being on the pitch at all times. That could maybe be a decent start, I think. Because one factor why you would want to have that is... If you want to promote parity in the Canadian Championship, you then give the Canadian Premier League teams, as well as the League One Canada teams, the inherent advantage because they are mostly Canadian rosters. Some of these MLS squads don't have as many Canadians to choose from. That could help you in that way. So maybe you could start with that and then work your way up. But I think going to minimum six on the field at all times, guarantee you the MLS clubs will not be down for that whatsoever. Of course not, but I'd 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 be down for five because... Like, I would be down for it, for that's sure. What, that's but, what I'd say. I'd be down for five. And if, logically, if you think about it, Forge made qualified for the Champions League. And what are the rules in the CPL? Six on the field at all mm-hmm. to start. So the fact that a team was starting six every week, weekend uh, in CPL was able to make the Champions League, it's something where it's like if you're pushing Canadian teams to, to, to get more Canadian players, like, I think the big issue really is the fact that Americans count as domestics in Canada. Because, obviously, now now that Canadians count as domestics, for the most part in the U.S., except unless they, if they've never played nonetheless, things are better. But it was a bit ridiculous, like, five, ten years ago, where, theoretically, a Canadian MLS team didn't need a Canadian. Like, they could just sign Americans and be fine. Like, oh, they needed three Canadians. But still, they could technically fill out their roster with all these Americans. It felt like if they tweaked that rule, that would have gone a long way, and then you could have done something like start five Canadians or keep three on the field at all times. And from Edward Hansen Wong, short of desanctioning MLS teams to force them to the CPL, ideas of how to better leverage the success of MLS teams to grow the CPL and soccer in Canada. Would love to pull the three MLS teams out of the League's Cup and have a Voyager's Cup with a group stage during that window. Group stage would increase MLS versus CPL matchups that boost attendance at CPL clubs and an un- interrupted Voyager's Cup could make it a bigger event as it's easier to follow for casuals and the media would be without distraction of a regular MLS season. A higher profile Voyager's Cup, more more visibility for the CPL. You know, I gave this a lot of thought when I first saw the question, but that would be awesome to see. I think the one thing you'll lose, it's really a case of do you want to promote parity and the magic of the cup, quote unquote, or trademark, whatever you want to call it, and 
pull a group stage format, then a knockout stage after that, and kind of ruin that element of it. On the flip side, I see what Edward's saying in that if you promote more CPL versus MLS matchups, you give those CPL teams the revenue from the gate. We saw what happened when Pacific hosted the Whitecaps. They obviously got buoyed by that attendance-wise, and it's kind of stuck ever since. You could have that same effect for many of the CPL clubs. I get it on that front. And just in terms of a competition, that would be cool. How you would format it, I don't know, because travel would become an issue. Now, if you could somehow get the MLS clubs to subsidize it in a way. Um, I don't know if Montreal, for example, would be down with that because they're hemorrhaging money. We know Canada soccer's financial problems already. Um, you could do a regional group stage, but then you have a lopsided Eastern group stage compared to a Western group stage. Um, so there are certain logistical issues in that way, but on the surface, it would be cool to have it for that reason alone. And then you could always have, like, if you have it League's Cup format, for example, you maybe have, say, the top four teams qualifying out of each group. You reseed into a one-off knockout round, right, until the final. Um, you randomly decide who the host is. You randomly decide who's going to play who. So then you still get a little bit of that parity while also still allowing the CPL teams to get the exposure from playing those MLS clubs. Just any case where you're hosting MLS teams, really, I'd say Voyager's Cup, make it so that CPL teams host till the semis. Again, I think that's very reasonable just in terms of look like I get for MLS teams. You could argue all oh, you'd want to host all games, right? But look, there's a reason why the Whitecaps looked into hosting games at Swan Guard this year and probably would have been able to do so had it not been for the Rovers playing there. Like you look at the attendances for a lot of these CPL MLS games. It's just for MLS teams, it's like, what's the point? It's half empty, whereas CPL stadiums, it means a lot more. Like, remember when TFC went to Halifax, sold out instantly. When, you know, Pacific or Vancouver visited Pacific, it's sold out, right? And I think... During a pandemic, too. During a pandemic, and uh, that's it. So, you, I'd say any way you're encouraging those matchups, that's a must. So, just force into the semifinals. Uh, and then another one I'm thinking is, why not make a Canadian Super Cup? That's something that we kind of lack in Europe, and it's something or that we lack in the U.S. that they do in Europe, is that there's no Super Cup for, like, U.S. Open Cup winner versus MLS Cup, or obviously in Canada. I think it would be fun to do, like, a Super Cup every year where either you do the CPL winner versus the top MLS Canadian team in the standings or, or whatever, or if you do the top two, like, the top CPL and top MLS team from the Canadian Championship just in the preseason a one-off game at hosted by the CPL team you have a shield on the line maybe you, you either you donate the, the revenue back to the CPL or to clubs or to charity like they do and of course the community shield in, in the UK I feel like it would be cool to have a game like that every year where there's a trophy on the line and CPL is competing with MLS I feel like that could be a great way to drum up interest between you know from MLS to CPL and vice versa and just kind of overall help everyone out because you add the trophy aspect MLS teams are going to care about it and the CPL teams are hosting they're getting that gate that chance to win mm -hmm. a trophy I feel like that'd be a huge incentive and given the calendars line up of course CPL starts a bit later but I'm sure there's a way where you could fit it in in a midweek in, in March Cup, you know even in, in like... March or February I think there'd be ways for make it work and getting into our MLS roundup, midweek and weekend action in Major League Soccer. Two straight defeats for CF Montreal, 3-0 against Cincinnati and 2-1 against the New York Red Bulls. And Toronto FC drew 0-0 with the New York Red Bulls and lost 1-0 against Austin late in the match on a somewhat comedic goal against. 
Uh, Vancouver coughed up another lead, lost 2-1 to Dallas midweek in Frisco, Texas, and beat Seattle 2-0 at home. And after TFC's second loss of this week, Federico Bernadeschi certainly had some comments. And the question from Crypto Junkie and Skipper McLeod, both of them of the same nature, from Skipper McLeod, I've gotten Portsmouth to the Champions League final every year from FIFA 11 to FIFA 23. I feel as if I'm qualified to coach this team at this point. Give me the reins. So a lot of frustration about Bob Bradley having the reins of TFC right now. Yeah, and it really all stems from just the current form, the build of the roster, and now Bernadeschi coming out and basically calling out the coach or throwing the coach under the bus and doing so, I think, in in the most polite-sounding way that he possibly could. Because even when he was, if you watch the video of him on Zoom, he's still not really, like, looking confrontational. It's almost like he's just having, like, a casual conversation, but he's like, yeah, we don't know how to pass the ball. We don't, we, we don't train this. And I'm like... We don't have the tactics. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking to myself, like, this is a very, like, non-confrontational way to call out a coach. But, um, look, he's not entirely wrong here. Like, when you watch them play, I understand injuries have exacerbated this, but even when they had a mostly fully fit roster, their tactics did look kind of one-dimensional. And when you have Bernadeschi and Insigne, we've been saying it for a couple weeks now, they've kind of been going off on their own thing, playing very individualistic, and that made me think, okay, clearly they're taking matters into their own hands and maybe not listening to what the coaching staff is doing or is telling them to do. And now we got pretty much evidence of that. So it is a mess for sure. And and now there were rumors today that Andrea Pirlo could take over as the coach, which I think would be absolutely chaotic, but I'd love it. Um, so it, it really is just a complete gong show with more than one Toronto sports team currently uh, in, in, in this day and age. I, I think it's something where with Bob Bradley, again, it's just the same issue. It's the fact that they've identified a roster and they haven't played a way that plays to the strength of that roster and they haven't rotated that roster which was as mentioned was old and I just think because of those factors you can lay a lot of blame on this on him for that because obviously the roster build as we've seen maybe isn't as how would I say it isn't as maybe you know high end as maybe we thought but I still again I stand by based on what we saw it's still something where it's a very low like very high floor on this roster and the fact that they're somehow playing below what their floor seemed to be uh, kind of shows that it's just, again, it's a lack of adaptability. That's the one for me. It's one thing if you struggle, you got to make tweaks. You got to try things out. At least even Hernan Lasada when he had his, you know, terrible start, they tried something. They traded some guys away. Obviously, I guess Toronto did that with Lucas McNaught, so I can't point at that, but they traded some guys away. <laughs> they tweaked, you know, some guys playing a new position. They're at least trying things. Yeah, they're experimenting yeah. with three up front, two up front, one up front. I feel like TFC week in week out. It's four three three. It's yeah. we have no center backs. It's Richie Larez playing at right center back. Like they're doing well, by the way. Yeah, doing well. Which is nuts, but uh, that's Richie for you. Like it's something where it's like, oh, we're missing Insigne. Let's play. Let's CM at left wing and not adjust that much. And it's just something where again, it just feels like there's no adjustment. There's no like. If I'm a performance analyst on the opposition team and I'm looking at TFC, I'm like, great. I know exactly how they're going to line up. I know exactly how they're going to set up. This is fantastic. Like, I mean, it's so easy to prepare against. Like, the only tweaks we've seen have just been profiles. Like, when That's Coelho and came in, he just offered a different profile, yep. and they changed. And when they played that four midfield with, like, what was it, Servania, K, Bradley, Azorio, the only mm. thing changed is that by playing a CM on the wing, he just naturally drifted inside. Uh-huh. And it's the Blaze Matweedy role, if you will. Uh, yeah, whereas, whereas it just feels like it's 
4-3-3 every week, try to play a certain way. And if anything, the players are, you know, again, you see when Bernadeschi and Singe dribble the ball a bit much, or if Winger drifts inside when he's supposed to be hugging the touchline. Yeah, there is not a lack of identity, but a lack of buy-in of that identity, at least. And uh, that's something where, again, might as well be spent saying for weeks that falls down to coaching at a certain point. Somewhat appropriate mention of Blaze Matuidi when you're talking about a club in shambles and Inter-Miami was in a bit of shambles when they tried to sign him. That's right, yeah, and then did sign him. And from Oz Sweeney, at Oz Sweeney 4, how many CPL teams could you build for the amount of money TFC has burnt into the stupid DP signing since their inception? And which city would you place your team? So you've put us a relocation and expansion question, as well as an interesting one. But when you're looking at, like... Yeah. Jermaine Defoe, Jovinko, Vasquez, Bernadeschi, oh Insigne. Well, Bernadeschi, I think, is maybe, like, the jury's still out. I mean, he had a solid first six months, and then since then, just not so much. But, yeah, you can probably buy all the CPL clubs. Like, you know that 100 million CSB claims they've invested in Canadian soccer? You can easily get all that back just from the DP signings that TFC has, has paid for. So, um, in terms of where I would place that team... Give me Quebec City. You could build a lovely stadium and get some really good players for all that money that uh, TFC has spent on their DPs in Quebec City. Fittingly, I think you'd have to go Montreal. You know what? Yeah. <laughs> Why not? Just, go for, the, just for the yeah. sh- everything about the, you know, going on the other side of the Canadian Classique. That's actually true, yeah. Just, uh, do it for the do it for the memes, if anything. And from Andrew Cohen at Andrew Cohen, are the white caps good? We've been saying it for a while. Yeah, they're they're good for sure on the road. They're just inept and or just not clinical enough. Um, But certainly at home, they're very good. And we've been saying it for a while. The underlying numbers look really good. Even just the eye test looks really good. But even in that Seattle game, which they won 2-0, it could have been 3 or 4 very easily and certainly could have opened the scoring a lot sooner if it wasn't for poor finishing again. That's really what's let them down all year. Because you look across the board... And they're tops in the league in most categories. In fact, they were second behind Seattle for the best non-penalty expected goals outputs in MLS this season. They held Seattle to 0.6 XG, and they themselves got just under 3 XG in that game. And Seattle themselves defensively have been pretty good too. So kind of goes to show you that, yes, they are indeed good. It's just about can they be consistently good. I think it's something where we've seen over the course of the season their performances have been good. I think the fact that the XG has what has added up, even despite playing on the road, um, you know, they still have good XG numbers. But I think it's also something where, yeah, really, if they were, first of all, if they were winning on the road, they'd be elite. Uh, and it's just, it feels like they're a bit of patience and one piece away from hitting, from really being taken that even further step. Because you saw what just bringing in Takaoka and a bit of patience could do for their team uh, as well. It's just imagine if what a guy, like if they can get that consistency up front through a Cordova, uh, if he can get fit and just get up to, to speed, or if Brian White can just start getting a little more to drop, if maybe start mm-hmm. playing Matias Laborda in the heart of a back four or back three more often. It worked on Saturday. So it is something where this the frustrating thing with the Whitecaps, I think overall they're, they're good, but it just feels like they're almost like a piece or a move or a tweak away from being great. And I think their road form really showed that. And the fact that, who knows, maybe it's what they showed on the weekend where, you know, they try that double pivot of Kubas Berhalter, maybe try it on the road and then they have a, you know, a solution to some of their road woes. Who knows? But they got to fix something on the road because that's really the big thing holding them back. Because at, at home, their record's always been decent. 
Uh, it's just the fact that they haven't won a home game since June of last year. And if they don't beat St. Louis in their next road game, I think it will have been 12 months since they won on road in MLS, which is ridiculous. And from Kahneman T100 always, at Kahneman T100 always, and welcome to Twitter as well, at MPH Legend. Should Hassel consider a move if he hasn't been getting playing time, or will that change as the season goes on? Is Habibullah making a case for the first team if he continues this form? A cracker of a goal he scored for White House. Yeah. Uh, he's looked really good in MLS Next Pro this season. He's hovering around 0.4 XG per 90 this season. He's hovering just under 0.2 expected assists per 90. And he had some really good moments with Pacific on loan last year. And it was just all about getting consistent playing time. Now that he is within the scouting range, even closer scouting range for the Whitecaps, maybe he does get a shot when the games start to pile up in the summer, the League's Cup comes around and other competitions like that. Um, Hassal is still very young for a goalkeeper. Alex has mentioned it ad nauseum, but Max Crippo didn't get his big opportunity until he was 25, basically, and then ran with it from there. So there's still a couple more years for Hassal to, to, I think, eventually come good. It was just very clear that Last year was probably a bit too soon for him to take the mantle as an MLS number one. Maybe he could get a CPL loan. Maybe getting minutes with WFC2 could help. Because um, being the backup, it, it does serve some purpose, but eventually he does have to start playing to get those reps in. I think, yeah, the thing with Hassal where I just think between Tarkoka really coming good on what he is, which isn't too much of a surprise, to be fair, given his his profile, I think it's something where Hassal has, has shown that maybe it might be worth looking at a move after this season. Because I think for me, the real big one was York away. The fact that York was struggling offensively. It's a free a chance to play a free Canadian, and you didn't throw Hassal into that game was a bit puzzling to me in that sense. Because it's obviously something where you, you, you have tackle. He's been very good. You want to run with them. But I just think from Hassal's perspective, and even the timeline, he's at an age where he should go dominate, be the guy in the CPL, or play regularly in MLS. Because, uh, you know, at 20, 21, 22, it's fine. But when you're reaching 23, 24, you know, we, we mentioned Crepo. He did also have those loans at USL at 23, 24 and, and popped off. Uh, so I think it's something where this next offseason is critical, especially from the Whitecaps perspective. They have Isaac Bomer, who is also, like, not that much uh, age difference between him and Hassal. And he's already shown decently at, at MLS Next Pro and uh, MLS level. You got Max Anker, who the Whitecaps are very high on, and, you know, he's he, at 18, he's someone who could quietly just throw his way into the conversation over the next few years. I think it's something where I feel like at the end of this year, it, it might make a lot of sense for Assault to seek a loan move or, or a move of that sort, because uh, I think, again, he's still young, but also it's a critical time in his development on the, the flip side of it. And as for Javi Bullis, just, he's at a, the wrong position for the Whitecaps, like, and it yeah. feels like if he was, it was just you look at Levante Johnson got a couple goals, but then you had strikers you got thrown in. Whereas it's you're you're fight you're fighting Vite Gall, you know Dahomey was playing there, he's gone. Caicedo was playing there. JC Nagando's looked excellent mm-hmm. every time he's played there. Uh, it's just something where Javi Bullis just a lack of opportunity, and there's a reason why him and Antoine Couplin haven't even gotten a sniff. Where honestly, I think they they certainly believe they should. And is Montreal's magic wearing off as well? Two straight losses. Well, they were going on an unbelievable finishing streak, one that just wasn't sustainable. Now that's kind of rearing its ugly head a little bit in that, yeah, they're expectedly not scoring as much or finishing off chances with the same sort of level of clinical finishing that they were showing before. But defensively, they're also starting to 
I think show some cracks, especially when they're getting pressed. I noticed that in recent games, I also wrote about this when I looked at the potential cup sets um, piece that I wrote for One Soccer, but they're starting to really hone in on just shutting down those outlets from the center backs directly to Mathieu Chouanier, to Sean Rea, Bryce Duke, whoever's playing in that two behind the number nine. And they're getting opportunities that way because there's usually massive gaps in the midfield. When that happens, teams are exploiting it and they're getting quality shots off by doing so. So unless there's a way to correct that, maybe the guys are getting a little tired. They're, they've had a quick turnaround. It's a pretty small squad. Hernan Mosala hasn't rotated that much. That could be a big reason why. I still think that they're going to end up being kind of in the position they're in where like they're kind of pushing for a playoff spot, but maybe aren't necessarily going to be one of those either top upper echelon playoff teams. They're going to be in around that kind of 7-8 range. Um, and as a result, you're going to see, I think, this kind of contrast in results where when they're winning 2-0, they look very good. They're very clinical. Defensively, they're giving up nothing. But then when they lose, yeah, it's a little more porous in that way. Well, I think a big one for Montreal, again, it goes back to what we talked about, I think, last week. It's Montreal, when they're defending well, they look at their best. And I think it's no coincidence that we had this chat about them last week. They were on that shutout mm-hmm. streak. Cincinnati, they gave up a tough goal right away. Like, that was so yes. unfortunate. Like, Joel Waterman, back from suspension, kicks it into his own net. And he defended that set piece very well, too. Except for just like... his clearance. He just catches the wrong side of it. And as we saw, Montreal just can't really chase a, a, yes, a game as yes. much. And that was something we saw earlier in the season where... They kind of got back into it against New like, York, to be fair. They did equalize. Well, um, even then, when they, just the fact that their defense kind of led up and they yeah, got in two yeah, goals yeah, like yeah. that. It's yeah. just it's something where we've seen across the whole season. They'll get chances when they're down, but just for whatever reason, they just don't look the same team when they have a lead versus when they're down a lead. And, you know, it felt like last year, for example, they had a lot of great comebacks. They were a team that would go down and would be unfazed by it but the, you know, they're a team now that uh, when when they go down early it's something where it's just they need that bit of structure almost mm-hmm. to, and a lead and then they're, they're just so rock solid and maybe that's just the next step for, for Lasada is that mentality especially because it is a young group to be fair it's one where you know some of these guys aren't, aren't used to that sort of adversity and maybe they had that last year and uh, again that's something where we'll continue to monitor because when defensively when they've been on they've been at their best. And getting into our CPL roundup as well, Forge drew nil-nil with Vancouver FC, a hard-fought draw by Afshin Gotby and Vancouver FC. Halifax Wanderers laid a stinker against York United. 3-0 for York United. Halifax remained the only winless team in the CPL. After Cavalry beat Atletico Ottawa 2-0, the first Cavs win of the season definitely took a minute to get there, but they do pick up their first win. Well, Valor tied 1-1 with Pacific FC. Forge stays top of the table on 12 points, Pacific one point behind in second. And the question from Arthur Lischinski. Atletico Ottawa have found a lot of success last year absorbing pressure and counterattacking, but this year we're having too many lapses in concentration and our results have been poor. Is it time to introduce more pressing and proactive play in our game plan? Hashtag Chesterfield coaching. (laughs) Uh, Look, in fairness to Carlos Gonzalez and Ottawa, they're experimenting with Jean-Denis LSC as a wingback. It's gone decently well in some ways defensively. He probably still has a bit more to learn. They've really changed the, the, their entire width of their defensive shape in a lot of ways. And so I think they're still adjusting to that. You got Luke Singh getting regular minutes now, which is a pretty big adjustment. He's had a couple decent games, but overall I think he's been quite inconsistent as you're going to get with younger center backs. Um, and then you also got to think as well, the Nate Ingham factor too, that losing him for, you know, the, the 
this period has been pretty telling right now. Like, Sean Melvin's okay, but Nate Ingham genuinely did keep that team in a lot of games where the defense started to look a little leaky, but he came up with the decisive saves. So I think all those factors put together, you're starting to see that. I think you can easily turn it around. They showed against Vancouver for, I mean, we're talking before it kind of turned into a blowout, but for the first half and maybe the first 10 minutes of the second half, they show that they can still shut it down and play that organized defensive structure. But it's when the teams get past them that they're starting to get a little leakier now. Yeah, I think Ottawa as well. Though it's it something where, for me, the big thing that hurt them in the two game in the, the game sorry was just the two goals they gave up. Ottawa giving up two set pieces like that. If you're gonna play on the back foot a bit more, not hold the ball, you can't be giving 100%. away two set piece goals, especially the one like the Camargo yeah. goal. Where it was such and they a, never did last year either. Really, like, it was such a loose goal to give up in the box. And you know, of course, the second goal is it's one of those where. As well, you just can't be giving up set-piece goals if you want to be defensive because it's something where they're so... Honestly, watch them in open play. I thought they were very good in this game against, in open play against Cavalry, but they allowed two cheap set-piece goals. And where the game was lost, as soon as Ottawa, uh, Cavalry went off, they were just fizzing the ball around. They had that back three. They were able to create those numerical superiorities in their build-up, and Ottawa just wasn't able to get a sniff. They weren't pressing. They weren't aggressive. Uh, so I guess to, to both parts of the question, it is a good point by Archer in the sense that Ottawa does need to show a bit more, you know, aggressiveness, assertiveness, especially in games where maybe they don't get a lead because you're not going to get a lead in every game. It's, it's soccer, right? It's something where mm-hmm. a set, a cheap set-piece goal can fully give away a, a dumb penalty or, you know, someone scores a worldie on you. Those things will happen in a game. You have to be able to play on the front foot and react. And I think if you're a team watching Ottawa this week and you're like, oh, if we can get an early one on them and just play it around the back, they're not going to pressure, they're not going to you know, want to win the ball back. I think the telling one was for me was these stats where Cavalry held 65% of the ball in the game. Um, so obviously Ottawa had way less of the ball. Yet despite holding way more of the ball, Cavalry still had more possessions won in the final third than Ottawa just because despite being without the ball, Ottawa still wasn't winning it in uh, the final third. Cavalry was doing a better job of that. I think that was telling of what went wrong for Ottawa in this game. And from Northern Football Fan at Porter BC 1409, is the Vonders experiment <laughs> with HFX failing? I don't know if it's necessarily down. I don't think it's necessarily down to the Vaughn players per se. I think it's the fact that Patrice Geyser doesn't know how to set up his midfield. Like you have three guys in that midfield who excel as a six, and I think Lorenzo Caligari not being available against York really, really, really he hurt them. Badly but even when Caligari's there and then you have Rampersad and you have Mo Omar, they almost look like... like Caligari is fine getting forward. He's fine playing the more advanced of the trio. But the other two, Rampersad's all right, I guess, in that regard. Mo Omar is not comfortable at all getting forward. Um, and I think the fact that all three of those guys thrive in the same role but aren't necessarily comfortable in other facets doesn't help. And Massimo Farron has cooled off. Um, Theo Collum's been okay, but he's been a little bit patchy or inconsistent. Zachary Fernandez, I'm not sure I like him as an out-and-out forward. I think you got to get him as a wingback, making those runs from deep. Um, that's where he was really threatening last year. So that could be a possible tweak you could make. Um, I understand you want to have maximum protection with Campania as the right back. But maybe this is a time where you start to take a few more risks in that regard. Or maybe just go to a straight-up back three, have... Fernandez as your out and out wing back rather than being in this in between role um, and utilize him that way. Maybe go with a front two 
And then that way you have a little more defensive solidity by playing your Omars, your Rampersads, your Caligaris, while also having that orchestration. Yeah, it's a tough one. So I think on one side it's growing pains because it's a brand new system. And one thing that Geyser has made sure to point out, which is very justifiable, it's a lot of running, it's a lot of rotations, and those are just things that you learn with reps. So on mm-hmm. one hand, that's, that's patience. I think for me, the, the few things that I would maybe be a bit concerned about is first of all they're just their defensive transitions like especially when Caligari is not on the field watching York York was just was every time there was a turnover in midfield or every time they bro- broke a line it looked like the Wanderers like were chickens with their heads cut off just chasing <laughs> space chasing the runner like the, the Baldissimo yeah. goal is a great example oh, yeah. like yeah, that yeah. one wasn't even off like a defensive transition it was just a midfielder got beat almost fell over and it was just as soon as Baldissimo got behind it was just panic trying to grab and Hey, at least Caligari, one thing he's good for, something it's a, a blessing and a curse, he breaks up transitions, and he gets a lot of yells for it, and that's why he's suspended and they missed him, but at least with him on the field, he did break up a lot of transitions and slowed uh, the game down. And just, yeah, the Wanderers, their transitions have worried me since day one just because there's so much right back going to left center mid and left left back transitioning into an outside back three and all these sorts of rotations that can be led to be exposed You know when you lose the ball. But those things can be worked out. And then I think also in the attack, they just haven't unlocked their, their full potential. And it just feels like, they're first of all, they're not getting the most out of West Timoteo. I just feel like, again, Aiden Daniels is playing great. Why not pair up Timoteo and Daniels? Because Timoteo has had some bright performance. I thought against Forge in Week 2, he looked phenomenal. Yet Daniels was on the bench. We haven't really seen them play together all that much. And also just up front as well. I mean, Teo Colom and Kosin won Farso have had flashes. I think Colom's kind of been the better of the two. My big question all this is we didn't I can't believe we didn't see him till this week was where's Lafumpe Mwande? I thought he was someone who looked very good at the end of last year, showed brightly, and the fact that he hasn't gotten a sniff all season long feels a bit weird. And from Johnny Lower at J on the spot twelve, any reaction to the Mark Noonan interview on Footy Prime? CSB is a terrible deal, but still impressed with what they've done. They've got a whole new broadcaster in Canada. MPs believe that corruption led to CSB, but looking at the Nike deal, the CSA really lacks professionals to lead it. So I do think that there are some potential sponsorship deals, and we saw a few examples of this leading up to the World Cup, where there is money there to be had commercially. Um, But it's not going to be there with regularity outside of the big events. Because unlike in the U.S. where there's a lot of earning potential, in Canadian soccer, not so much. Um, Now, I did listen to that Noonan interview because I was interested to hear what he had to say, and he did have a lot to say, and I thought he was actually pretty decently transparent there were some concerns in terms of some of the answers i had which i'll get into but he let off with him saying that he didn't want to see soccer competing against itself in canada which i've been saying forever like canadian soccer cannot get out of its own way and they have a history of infighting and just a lack of trust and it has to stop And the fact that he came out there and said that, I thought was really, really good because that's certainly been an issue in Canadian soccer. Um, Now, as for the CSB-related stuff, um, he led off that conversation by saying, and I'm quoting him directly here, CSB has been used as a pawn in a labor negotiation, and I am sick and tired of CSB getting bashed. He then goes on to say some other pretty interesting tidbits like, um, we have made many overtures to Canada soccer, including one on March 7th to 
Earl Cochran when he was still in the role as general secretary, which hadn't been responded to yet, I think for understandable reasons, because they've been going through so much leadership change, speaking to the Heritage Committee and MPs. Um, now, they made an offer, apparently, this is CSB, to increase the money to the CSA and they're a fraction of the revenues that go into the CSA. That's apparently what Noonan says, which I find confusing because when you read the initial agreement, um, they are siphoning off a large chunk of the commercial revenue that Canada Soccer brings in as part of the deal. So, you know, it's kind of hard to believe everything that he says in that regard. And on that note, he did slightly dodge a follow-up from Amy Walsh when she asked about why, given the successes of both national teams, there haven't been tangible increases in revenues and budgets for those teams, and why there haven't been expected increases, and who's responsible for the increases not being there. It was a very pointed question. It was a great question from Amy. And then Noonan kind of got a little bit defensive, being like, well, Amy, you don't know the, the details of the deal. Um, he mentioned bonuses and increases on every single year of the deal, and then offered, once again, he reiterated that they offered to open up or add a, quote, considerable amount, end quote, of money. But again, if they get the majority of the commercial revenue, like, if all these words really mean nothing unless we actually see evidence and or hear actual numbers behind these offers. Um, and I understand maybe why for legal reasons he wouldn't be able to, but it's it really means nothing when we have evidence on paper that the deal is structured a certain way and it was set up in a certain way I don't doubt that they're trying to fix this in some way or amend the deal in some way. Um, but the question is, what exactly are they doing and how much money exactly is being put towards that? Yeah, I feel like I guess the big thing has been since the beginning is just, I guess, how quiet CSB has been in all this. So um, in a sense, it's uh, it's you know good to have just interviews like this to, to hear. And certainly even when you know they were doing press releases earlier, people were just more like, it was good to, to, to hear from them in, in that regard. So that's obviously been something to, that's big about an interview like that, obviously on, on Footy Prime and, you know, people who know their stuff and we're certainly able to bring that, that sort of line of questioning to, to it all. And yeah, I think it's a big thing about CSB since the beginning has been transparency, transparency about the deal, et cetera. And I think uh, just being yeah forward facing with interviews like this is, a, is certainly a huge step for fulfilling that uh, regard. He did also say some other interesting things though about the CPL um, specifically. Like he gave kudos to Rodfriend and Josh Simpson for giving back in the form of investing in CPL themes, building a soccer-specific stadium in the Vancouver area, um, and they need more praise. And I completely agree with that. They certainly do because they're giving back in so many awesome ways. Um, he also said, Noonan, that there is, quote, a lot of interest in the league itself, end quote, when it comes to expansion, which is certainly encouraging. And uh, he spoke about the deal with uh, York's owners and the league. And he said the reason they made the deal with York's owners was to make the transaction as smooth and seamless as possible. So new owners could interact with just one party rather than the current York owners, the league, and then obviously the prospective owners. Um, and then he went on to say that the goal is to have great ownership playing in the right facility with the right conditions to be successful. And they are considering all options of continuing at York University, a new venue, all that stuff. Um, and when it came to that right facility with the right conditions to be successful line, I can't remember who it was who brought this up. I think it might've been Jimmy Brennan who said this, but he spoke about 
Halifax's convenient location to be able to go to the pubs after or before the games or having the restaurants around and just having just a conveniently located stadium, whereas at York and Edmonton, you don't or didn't have that. So that's obviously crucial. And the fact that he's speaking about this, you can see that Noonan and the league have their priorities straight and they're trying to get ahead of things, certainly more so than the previous regime was. And from David Anthony, A underscore Miller 16, when do you expect we will hear about Ken Piel expansion for 2024? I know Kelowna was at least floated and it seemed like they were pretty advanced, but I would also imagine that at this point we would have heard. Yeah. Whether it's coming into the league for next yeah, year. I think, I think the Saskatoon thing might have held it up. Mm. I, I'm pretty sure it was because I think they wanted to announce both of them or unveil them both at the same time and that probably held it up. Um, so maybe it gets delayed to 25, possibly, because when Vancouver got initially announced, it was like end of 2021, was it not? And then, and then the branding was unveiled the very next year, end of 2022, yeah. for a launch in 2023 this year. So Yeah, even like, I guess the Willoughby was launched, I think it was March 2022 or April for like the whole like Willoughby like that, Stadium yeah. and the official like they're going to play next year. so just And we're like, less than a year away from 2024 in terms of the season kicking off. So if we haven't heard anything by now, it's possibly not likely anymore. I'm sure Cologne is still going to come into the league at some point. It's just, do they want them to come in by themselves and have an uneven amount of teams again? Or are they going to wait for another expansion club to come in? Whether that's Saskatoon, Quebec, another team in the Maritimes, what have you. Although, to be fair, Atletico Ottawa were only announced in January 2020 and then kicked off in 2020. I'm sure it was the Island Games, but that was a quick turnaround That's true, well. and in a pandemic as well, yeah. Different regime too, though. To be yeah, fair. Atletico Madrid was behind it. They probably could have, you know, really gotten this thing off quickly just because of their resources, I suppose. And plus, Ottawa already had a stadium too. Not that they played there, but... They could play at TD Place, right? Mm. Or TD, what is it called? TD Place? TD Place. TD, there's so many TDs and Rogers and Bells BMO's. and BMOs and you just lose count. And from Montrealer at Intermontrealer, what's the development of Quebec CanPL franchise? An ownership group suggested on a tweet that they'd have news by early May and still nothing. You know, there are still talks. Um, the fact that Noonan went on Footy Prime and talked about there being a lot of interest in the league and that they're pretty optimistic about certain things, it speaks that there could be something in the works. It just might not be fully ready to announce yet because I imagine they're going to want to avoid another Saskatoon debacle. They're going to want to get a stadium planned in there, one that's approved, one that they can get going with right away, similar to what we saw with Vancouver when they initially launched. Yeah, I think it's something where they're, the you know, discussions are there for a Quebec franchise. Like it makes, if you're the league, it certainly makes a lot of sense, but especially now, you know, for, for ownership, uh, you know, that's always obviously been a big hurdle. Um, no idea about that specific group. Cause I think it was that one, but with, you know, Alex Bunbury tweeting it out and I don't know how much movement that's been there, but there's certainly been, you know, move uh, movement there from, from people involved in the grassroots of Quebec. I think you, you know, be foolish not to, when you see what league one league, uh, Quebec has been able to do and uh, you know the, the, the just overall pipeline of pro players coming out of the, the province would be foolish not to be looking and I think owners are going to come around to that and I think as well yeah especially after last fall and how the Blainville women's team was received when they uh, did the interprovincial championships etc I think the, you know that's only helped that push and from Canamenti 100 always at Canamenti 100 always if you could fill the seven missing spots from the provisional roster to make 60, which players either overlooked from MLS or CPL would you have wanted to see? Two that stood out to me would be Brandon Cambridge and Marco Bustos from our earlier conversation, but if, to get up to seven, it does get a little bit challenging in that sense. 
Yeah, I think for fun, if I throw two CPL names, I'd probably throw Sean Young and Bijan and Yelisi. I think it's something where, you know, given their age, their profiles, what they've shown, their developmental arcs, I think those are a pair of players that would be fascinating. I was thinking even maybe this could be a Gold Cup name, a guy like Matteo Di Brienne could be a very interesting outside shot at left back given his, he's still only 20. That's the thing that blows me Which away. Which is nuts, by the way. It's just, he's, because he's been balling out uh, for Valor and it's been a huge, you know, you 21 minute muncher for them. I think he's going to get the 2000 on his own with how good <laughs> he's, he's been. Um, Probably. So those are a few from CPL, I guess from, from uh, MLS. Uh, you could, I guess, uh, argue maybe some of those guys on the periphery, like a... Go again. Like, I guess, one of those, like, Levante Johnson-esque players, or even a Krisnovich Insa, given, like, those guys who've been doing well at MLS Next Pro have had that cup of coffee, um, you know, in the, in MLS already. So maybe a few of those guys, and other than any, you know, dual nationals in Europe and whatnot, because obviously we, we know the circumstances there. And getting into our Canucks Abroad roundup and mailbag, the Northern Football Podcast is proudly partnered with Canucks Abroad. Find the full Canadian player pool and daily schedules for Canadians in action at canucks-abroad.ca. Jonathan David converted a penalty to end his brief dry spell for Lille in their win over Marseille. E.K. Ubo started consecutive games for the first time since September as already relegated Trois drew 1-1 with Strasbourg. Kyle Lahren and Real Valladolid were in trouble after a 2-0 loss to Cadiz in a relegation six-pointer. Lahren had three shots, including two brilliant chances in the defeat, but then Lahren converted a penalty against FC Barcelona in a 2-0 win to lift them out of the relegation zone for the time being. Luca Coliosho was an unused sub for Espanyol over the weekend against Rayo Valcano after receiving nine minutes against Barcelona last week. In Portugal, Stefan Estacchio started and had two glorious chances in Porto's 4-2 win over Familia Sao. For the first time this season, Steven Vitoria missed a penalty as Chavez lost 1-0 to Aruca. Victor Latoury started as Ross County lost a 1-0 nail-biter to Harry Payton's Motherwell. Payton also started in that match. David Watherspoon was a late substitute in a 1-0 win for St. Johnston over Kilmarnock. Theo Bear was an unused sub. Sam Medicubi was an unused substitute for Galatasaray in their third straight game. Gala are one match away from winning the Turkish Super League. Scott Kennedy got the nod at centre-back in a 2-1 win over Antrak Braunschweig, but Jan Regensburg are as good as relegated. Theo Corbinu got 15 minutes as Armenia Bielefeld consolidated the relegation playoff place in the second Bundesliga. Liam Miller was an unused substitute in Basel's loss to Fiorentina in the Conference League semifinals. He didn't make the matchday squad over the weekend. Derek Cornelius was everywhere for Malmö in their 2-2 draw with Swedish champions Haken. He created the second goal and was arguably at fault for the second goal conceded and covered a ton of ground in an end-to-end match. Marco Bustos was an unused substitute for Varnamo in just the second time this season, as they lost 1-0 to Kalmar on Monday. In Columbus, Mo Farsi and Aiden Morris went the full 90-3-2 loss to Cincinnati on Saturday. Jason Rossero had 10 minutes off the bench as well. In Wednesday's win over the LA Galaxy, Morris went 90, Farsi played the entire second half, and Russell Rowe got 12 minutes off the bench. Kamal Miller and Inter Miami lost two matches last week, 2-1 to Nashville and then 3-1 to Orlando on Saturday. Miller went the 90 in both of those. Lucas McNaughton scored his first MLS goal in the win over Miami on Wednesday as he logged the full 90 there and against Charlotte on Saturday. Jacob Schaffelberg came off the bench in both those games. Dan Sinclair recorded a couple of clean sheets and a pair of 1-0 victories for Minnesota United. Kyle Hebert was moved to left back for St. Louis as they crushed Sporting Kansas City 4-0 on Saturday. Raheem Edwards started in the loss to Columbus on Wednesday but was taken off at halftime. He had 27 minutes off the bench in Saturday's defeat to D.C. 
Ralph Preso started and went the 79 minutes for the Colorado Rapids in Wednesday's 4-0 loss to Atlanta United. Moise Bombito came off the bench and played around 30 minutes. Preso had half an hour in Saturday's loss as well. Brandon Cambridge bagged a 13-minute brace for Charlotte as a second-half sub in a 3-2 loss to Rail Salt Lake. And a question from Tommy Combe at TommyCombe14. What are you guys' first impressions of Moise Bombito? I was surprised to see him make the preliminary list already. Do you think he could be a dark horse candidate for the Gold Cup squad, or is it a bit too early? He looked really good against Atlanta, playing out of position at right back. There were certain things that he struggled with, which you expect. I think there were times when he just forgot to track certain runners and just left guys free on the right-hand side of Colorado, and then they were able to get into the box easier. But then as the game went on, I think he got more comfortable doing that. And in one-on-one duels, the guy is immense. Like He was stopping Derek Etienne time and time again after he came off the pitch, or came onto the pitch, excuse me. And on the ball, he looked decent. And it's funny because in college, he got a lot of praise for his on-the-ball qualities. And yet it was in this game defensively where he really, really shined, I thought, and showed his potential in that regard. And the fact that he already had the -the on-the-ball qualities, if he continues to grow defensively, then that's going to be massive for his potential and his stock. Yeah, and I think he has also a lot of physical tools you can see right away. He's so tall, too. His size, just, you know, his speed he moves at for that size and... You know, you add it with the on-the-ball quality that you can see is, is quite evident. You saw it again, yeah, against Atlanta. There were bright flashes. Of course, there was, you know, there was one where a couple of those late goals that, that went in, he maybe would have uh, wanted back in hindsight. But I think it's something where, you know, given the tools he has, the skill he's shown on the ball, I think those things will only come with time with just getting used to the pace of play. Uh, of course, now I'd, I'd like to see Colorado give more of a look, especially because they've experimented with the back three. They've had some injuries at the back. It would be a pretty seamless fit to get a look from there. And could he make the Gold Cup squad? Potentially. I just say that because that center back feels like things are wide open enough for that if you get a good six to ten game run before then and maybe perform well, you could be on the cusp, especially if someone of his age and potential. I'm sure, you know, John Herbman would be, you know, if a guy's like that doing well and getting regular reps and MLS and doing well, I feel like it'd be foolish to not look at a guy given his long-term potential and your need for more center back options. Dominic Storr went the full 90 for a Corona Kelce in a 3-0 loss to Lech Poznan. Marcus Godinho had 15 minutes off the bench. Nico Sigur went the full 90 again. Nico Sigur went the full 90 again for Hajduk split in a 1-0 win over Slaven. Amir Batriev was a second-half substitute for Sochi as well in their game versus Nizhny Novgorod. To the woman abroad, Jesse Fleming and Kadisha Buchanan played in both of Chelsea wins last week as starters on Wednesday and off the bench on Sunday. Deanne Rose made a return for Reading as she had around 30 minutes off the bench, certainly a welcome return ahead of a big summer for the Canadian women's national team. Vanessa Gilles went her usual 90 minutes in Lyon's win over PSG and also announced that she will be sticking with Lyon for next season. Chloe Lacasse scored and assisted in what was likely her final game for Benfica. She has been linked to Arsenal in recent reports. Julia Grosso had 58 minutes for Juventus in a 4-2 loss to Fiorentina. And over in Sweden, Evelyn Vien scored twice for Kristianstadt while Clarissa Laracy had a goal for Haken. Sarah Stratagakis and Suryeka both started and went the full 90 for Vitro in their win as well. Jordan Heidema scored for the OL Reign in a 4-1 defeat to Gotham. Quinn also got the start and logged 64 minutes in that one. Christine Sinclair was a second-half sub for Portland in their huge win over Chicago, while Adriana Leon was an unused sub. Bianca St. George went 90 for the Red Stars. Alicia Chapman and Sophie Schmidt each had 81 minutes for the Houston Dash in their defeat to Kaylin Sheridan's San Diego Wave. And Gabby Carl got the 90 at left-back for the Washington Spirit in a 2-1 loss to the Orlando Pride. 
And a question from WSoccerCA at WSoccerCA. With the European season winding down, who is your hashtag CanWNT standout performer from each league? France, England, and Portugal. Also, at current form, who do you pick between Bianca St. George and Gabby Carl? Both really good questions. In France, it's hard to look past Vanessa Gilles. Um, it's ditto for Chloe Lacasse in Portugal, just because she absolutely tormented that league again and is looking to be getting a well-deserved move abroad. In England, it's a bit tougher because there are really only a couple of candidates. It really just depends, I think, who or almost like what side of the game you focus on. I would lean Jesse Fleming because I think in the big game she's played in, she looks like she belongs, whereas I feel previously for Chelsea hasn't always been the case. And that's huge for Canada's uh, stock come World Cup time because if she's thriving on that big stage, then when the World Cup comes around, it's not going to be so daunting for her. And they're absolutely going to need her to be in tip-top form. So that's certainly encouraging. Uh, between St. George and Gabby Carl, Carl can play both positions, which is pretty massive. So I would lean her in that regard, but certainly on current form, I don't think there's too much really separating them at the moment. Yeah, I mean, for each league, I mean, obviously some obvious picks there, but to other ones that I've impressed uh, that have impressed me, I'd say in France, has to be Sadie Sider-Eckenberg. Yeah, I think she's uh, impressed and, and done well. And again, given her midfield, she's been, you know, Fighting for minutes on on Dav, but when she's gone on, she's shown good offensive profile, good things on the ball. Of course, the the goal is a huge plus. Over in Portugal, I mean, I, I've made no secret of uh, the fact that I've admired the performances of Mary Yasmin Aladou. Uh, to to use a very French term, uh, admired. I, I always love using that word. Like uh, this club admired the performance of this player as well. In one case, I certainly admired the performances of Aladou just in that midfield for uh, for Milikau. Just the you know the fact that they're you know they're they're a mid table team and they beat Benfica in the cup. They had some good games. She was just chipping in with goals and assists, playing that number eight, number ten. Again, you look at Canada and you're like the midfield depth isn't you know as great as it is say center back or full back or even up front. So I just feel like that's someone where feels like she should have just gotten a bit more of a look than she has given how good it was and it's, it feels like no coincidence that she finally got a call in in April it was when you know there's some injuries and then she sounds like she did well in training and it just feels like Canada should be giving her more of a look for this cycle but she's still young enough where we could be talking Olympics we could be talking uh, the next cycle she's just 26 27 uh, and then as for England yeah it's a tough one just because you know someone like Shalina Zadorsky obviously I had, you know, health issues for the latter half. Adrian Leon didn't see the field. We didn't really see much of Jade Riviere. Mm -hmm. Deanna Rose, of course, had her injuries and, you know, was someone I was super excited to look forward to. So it really, I'd say Sabrina D'Angelo. I think just the fact that she found her feet as quickly as she did for a club like Arsenal, stepped into some big games in the title race and, you know, won them some, some key games. Obviously, in the end, uh, it's kind of gone down to, to United versus Chelsea. But the fact that, you know, D'Angelo, when she was called upon, I think pretty much won all of her games. Like, that's uh, what you want from her. And hopefully she can uh, continue to get more minutes for them going forward. Well, you completely stole my Sabrina D'Angelo pick. I was kind of thinking that maybe you'd go Jesse Fleming as well for England. But for me, it'd be Sabrina D'Angelo in England. Just as you said, just how quickly she found her feet. Not so much playing time in the WSL, but getting a lot of cup opportunities. And she looked like she belonged in, in those opportunities as well. Over in France, Vanessa Gilles, just the way that she's stepped up there as well. 
Uh, and in Portugal, I think it has to be Chloe Lacasse. With she's those, the MVP. The way that she's been playing, right? So it, I would have to pick those those players. I think generally kind of basic picks, but those are the standouts of the KWNT over in Europe in those three countries. But when you're looking at current form and you're trying to pick between Bianca St. Georgia and Gabby Carl at that fullback position, who really stands out for you guys? I'd probably go Gabby Carl. I just think that I've, the spirit games I've had a chance to watch, she's just been so good defensively and uh, you know and I think that's something where we've seen that at that left back position you know Canada's always valued a bit of that defensive stability especially on the other side obviously Ashley Lawrence brings that but she goes forward a bit more uh, whereas Carl has a lot of those defensive profiles maybe not the snarl of, a, of an Alicia Chapman but certainly a lot of the defensive capabilities to fill in there and the big asset that she has and you know why I believe she should be pushing more for a starting role really than she has. It's just she's so clean on the ball. She does. She makes a lot of good decisions. Uh, you know, can break lines. Uh, you know, very smooth with their hip movement. Can drop in and help you make a back three. But also when is gone forward and made some great runs as well for for the spirit. And I think it's something where I like what Saint George's brings to the table. She kind of has a bit more of that. You know, that snarl, that X factor obviously can go a bit far sometimes last year, like when she got that red card for the uh, double middle fingers. But also she she is gives you a bit more going into the final third. But I just think uh, at fullback, it feels like Canada needs just a bit more of DNP almost, that, that destroy and progress, uh, you know, and especially when you already got Ashley Lawrence bringing you a lot of progression at that right side. It feels like someone of... Carl's profile where she's comfortable defending and progressing the ball. It just feels like they're what they need at that, that left back to keep some of that defensive stability while still able to get the ball to their midfielders, get the ball up front. And from Dan Clark at Dan Clark triple nine, what is your ideal starting 11 information for the hashtag can WNT hashtag can XNT for the world cup, given her current health and form? Well, we know who's in goal, uh, Kaylin Sheridan. The defense and even just going from there from the formation, like I think it depends on what we want to see and also what we're going to see. Let's kind of come at it from the perspective of what we want to see rather than what we are probably going to see. So if it was up to me, I really would not mind seeing a back three. Oh, at all like love, you know back five for, possibly like and then go with a trio in the middle like almost replicate what the can mnt does in terms of going three five two right um and then maybe going into a back five against some of the stronger teams if you really want to um and then from there it's all about kind of picking the players so i think on current form i feel like do you go heidema and vienna up front for now to start with possibly <laughs> And then in the hole, you go Jesse Fleming as one of the midfielders. You probably go Grosso and Quinn in the midfield. I think that would be the ideal trio to have. Wingbacks, you probably go, I understand she's not in form per se, but you probably want to go Riviere and Lawrence as your wingbacks. And then the centerbacks are, what would that be? Gilles, Buchanan, and take your pick, I guess, from there. Um, you could even have possibly one of you know your deep-lying midfield options drop in as a centerback, possibly. Um, but that would be the ideal 11 for me, just based on the form and also based on what we would want to see from them in terms of formation and and just who would mesh together in that system. Yeah, I'd say 4-3-3, keep the continuity. I'd say Sheridan in goal, I'd say right to left. Um, Riviere, uh, uh, Gilles Buchanan, Lawrence. I think that's a back four that showed mm -hmm. well. Zadorski can fill in. You got other fullbacks who can fill in. Yeah. 
I think mid, you got to go in midfield trio. I think it has to be Quinn, Fleming, Grosso. Mm-hmm. Throw Scott in there as well, especially if it's a game where maybe you know you're going to have a bit less of the ball just because yep. yep, I think she can she's... get in there defensively, yep. She's shown her value off the ball, and I think it's no coincidence that Canada's had two of their worst defensive camps with, in which she's been injured. Mm-hmm. Like, she's kind of severely underrated in that regard, and then up front, mm-hmm. based on who's healthy, I'd go... Um, I'd, I'd honestly throw some sort of combination of Vian, Hoytema, Lacasse and throw Hoytema or Vian on the wing just because it's something where, screw it, get both on the wing, maybe jam one of them on the side where Lawrence is just because you can get bit forward and fill it in and allow one of them to play in, in that sort of inside forward role. And if not, throw a Deanne Rose. Yeah, if she's fit enough and healthy enough, of course. I think if she is fit and healthy enough, she starts and it's Lacasse, Rose, and take your pick between Hoytema and Vian, I think. Personally, I just lean Vienne. Obviously, Hoytema has been in great form, which is a nice thing to have. I just feel like Vienne has, I mean, shown it whatever. Even in limited minutes, she can, she's shown she can score for Canada. But I think it's one of those where the nice thing is with both being in form, it feels like it's, it's a good debate to have. And also getting into the CONCACAF U20 Women's Championship as well, kicking off on Wednesday, Canada in a group with Jamaica, Panama, and the U.S., certainly a testing opponent in the U.S., but the kickoff against Jamaica, 1 p.m. on Wednesday, and then they face Panama, 12 p.m. on Friday, and then a big North American clash, 3 p.m. on Sunday, May 28. Certainly an intriguing tournament, and Alex actually previewed it earlier today for One Soccer. Um, what's there to watch in this tournament? Certainly a young Canadian group. Yeah, I think that's the big thing that stood out is it's a bit of a younger group from last cycle. And that's it's interesting because this group has a little more experience playing together because the last group, because of the pandemic, they didn't really get much of a U17 or U20 experience. They're just kind of thrown together for last year's CONCACAF championships. They did enough to make it out, went to the World Cup, didn't do the greatest there, obviously going up against professionals playing in D1 Arkema. And when you got NCAA kids and whatnot is a different fight but what's interesting with this group of, of kids is that hey it's very young i think it's something where uh you know the the squad that went last year was very reliant on players that aged out only i think five eligible returnees and only three of them are in this squad obviously olivia smith is one of them and the fact that she's still just 18 and you know so she was one of only i think two or three canada goal scorers at last year's u20 world cup so that kind of shows her level she dominated at the u20 championships had i think uh, over a, do- a half a dozen goals in that tournament. That's huge to have that returning experience. But really, the, the stars of the show are all these U17s that have graduated that went to the World Cup last year. And, uh, obviously, they didn't make it out their group either, but they were, they, they, I think they drew two games and they were very close in the last game to just getting a win and getting out of their group. Um, and I think it's good that there's been a lot of continuity there. There's a lot of them that either play for the NDC team in ter- on Ontario that won League One Ontario. Or play for the Whitecaps team that won League One BC and also recently uh, the, the the FIFA Blue Stars Invitational Tournament in, in Europe where they're going up against the best U- U19s from Juventus and uh, places in Switzerland. So, yeah, i just be keep an eye on that continuity because there's been some real chemistry built there from those players. I mean, up front, there's some firepower in your Rosa Maloufs and dropped 10 goals in League One Ontario last year. Jamie Perrault was a threat week in and week out in League One BC. Naya Rose is also someone that looked very good on that NDC Ontario team. You know, Annabelle Chukwu as well. Amanda Allen, a pro player on this team, which cannot be understated how important that is. Just that she's got that those reps with Orlando Pride, uh, along with Olivia Smith. There's lots of options up front and midfield. 
It's a bit thin, but Geneva Hernandez Gray, she's continued to you know ball out with the Whitecaps just 16, and she scored a couple goals in qualifiers there this year for the U20s. Uh, and at the back as well, Claire Logan is a real standout. Like she, she plays a very mature style of game in League One BC. She captains the side often and just plays such a you know it looks like she's 25, 26 the way she moves the ball and commands the back line. And you know you add in some piece around her like Ella Adi, Renee Watson, Maya Archibald as well from the Whitecaps. Uh, you know lots to 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 like there. Uh, so overall, yeah, younger team but a team that has a lot more chemistry. Don't get it wrong; they're gonna be. In tough just in the regard that they're going to go up against professionals but i do think the chemistry is a big add over this last one and for what it's worth a lot of these players they've brought in have been dominating players five six seven years older than them in league one ontario and bc so that should equip them better say if they're going up against pro players and it's no coincidence that someone like amanda allen's made that jump up to pro and looked well because there's a lot of other players who i think could make that jump if they wanted to yeah, I mean, you look at a player like Claire Logan and just the calmness that she has at the back in League 1 BC, especially with that Whitecaps team, I think she could step into a pro setup. Certainly there's maybe strength that has to be developed and to go head-to-head with women at the pro level, but like the quality on the ball and off the ball and the leadership that she has on the back line, like, it's outstanding when you watch her. Um, but Canada getting going in the Dominican Republic on Wednesday against Jamaica. And a question from Mark Carveo at Fan 2001 Switching over back to the men's side, I have to be honest, after Fonzie got hurt, I stopped following Bayern and the Bundesliga in general. What has been going on in Bayern since he got hurt? Did they really miss him so much that they're probably going to lose the league for the first time since 2012? Yes and no. Um, I mean, he was being deployed very weirdly and or not at all. And it's probably not a coincidence that their downturn in form started right around that time. But I think in general... The timing of that decision and the abruptness of that decision to change coaches just did not help the squad whatsoever. Like, it was right before the Champions League quarterfinals. Um, You know, players didn't really see it coming. And for Tuchel to come in and then for their results to take a downturn that way, um, you know, it, it really is crazy. And you could see that the players just weren't grasping the instructions too like they were missing simple cues or not following certain things and that goes to the fact that maybe they weren't listening immediately to the coach or just weren't grasping the concepts quickly so i think it was a combination of everything fonzie getting hurt probably didn't help because even in the games where he was playing and he played in that first leg against man city and there were many 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 opportunities where he got forward and i thought as well like, Manuel Akanji on his side was lunging into challenges very early. Like, Fonzie, if he was just being utilized more on the ball, could have really exploited that, and they just never did. And then the fact they didn't have a number nine didn't help, and they were constantly crossing the ball with no one there. Also not helpful, but all those factors have led to Bayern potentially losing the Bundesliga for the first time in more than a decade. Yeah, I think the Tuchel one was the big one. It just felt like everything went wrong in the sense that he had the guy who won every Champions League game so far this year, or at least, you know, uh, he won both games in the PSG tie as well, did he not, Nagelsmann? Yes. So it's just it's one where you, you had him there, and you, you bring in Tuckle, and it was just obviously you're going up against City. City's, you know, bodying everyone right now. Yep. It just it created the unnecessary stability, uh, instability at that time, and just in the league play, it, it's just been too much catch-up at the wrong time, whereas... Under Nagelsmann, it's been it'd been a project of a year and a half. They he you know finally been starting to instill mm-hmm. his principles, back threes, and you know just the way they want to press, the way they want to play, and 
the fact that they just all reset it at such a crucial time of the season is catching up to them, and mm-hmm. especially when they're playing opponents that can play with them, like Leipzig over the weekend. Uh, you know that was they were able to frustrate them and whatnot. So I just really feel like if it's one of those where I think we're gonna have to see it to believe it from Dortmund. Obviously, it would be a great story if they can see it over the line, and especially how they're able to come back and. You know, a guy like Marco Royce, you can only think about what it would mean for him. Stefan Howler after the cancer uh, he went through. Like, it would be a great story. We're obviously going to have to see it to believe it. Can they get it over the line? But it just feels like if it does happen, it was Bayern were the biggest architects of their own downfall. It was one of those where there was just no logical reason because it was in the Champions League, he'd won every game. So at least you could almost bank on, okay, he continues his magic or you lose to a juggernaut City team that just dismantled Real Madrid, that just, that dismantled like every team that was thrown in front of them. And then in the league, like at least you had the continuity of Nagelsmann where for the most part, they, yeah, they had their few slip-ups in January, but he recovered. They were comfortable though. And they recovered from them. They, yeah. they learned from them. They were struggling. Okay, they go to a back three and all of a sudden looked great again. And just the bringing in a new manager kind of nullified a lot of that work he'd done. And he had in that tuckle got them eliminated from the Pokal. It's one of those. This was a disastrous appointment. I don't think it's one where it's bad because I think Tuckle's still a solid manager. But it's just like, why now? If you wanted him... Wait until the, the summer. Like, the wait season. until he gets the preseason. Because he needs a preseason. Every coach needs a preseason. Let Nagelsmann go. He, then, if you don't like what you saw, but like it just made no sense. He was still in every competition, undefeated in the Champions League, leading. It was genuinely bonkers. The it was actually not even footballing reasons why he was let go, which makes it even stupider. So It's, it's genuinely bonkers if you look back on it. And from A.J.J, biggest stock up, stock down this season in terms of the Canem and T. I would say stock up probably... Brendan Cambridge, because he came kind of out of nowhere, and now he's within consideration. Moise Bombito on that as well. Matthias Schwanier. Uh, I, yeah, I guess uh, any of those guys. Kyle Hebert. Uh, you know, a lot of those guys on the cusp. I mean, answer the question from maybe more of a perspective of who's actually like on, on the, the squad. Um, it feels like stock up. I mean, Kyle Laren, Jonathan David. I feel like Kyle Laren in particular uh, has been one just because... He's someone where obviously he was scoring a lot of goals at the national team level, but just his club form, it felt like, could yeah. you go 4-3-3? Could it be time to phase him out? Get an extra mm. winger, extra midfielder. But his form has been so good. they like, okay, maybe a 3-5-2 with Laren and David up top gets the job done. Uh, so I'd say Laren in that regard. Um, Derek Cornelius as well. Just mm-hmm. his, his play for Malma feels like he's the number one center back now. And, you know, that's something where... You know, that, that, that wasn't as clear uh, heading into this year. Mm-hmm. Even last year, it felt like he was so low down the pecking order and should have been higher, but now he's he is higher. He's shown it. He's gone to a higher level and proven himself. I guess for the most part, most guys are pretty clear in the roles. I guess Ismail Kone technically is just can, his stock continues to yeah. go up. What um, about stock down? Uh, and as for stock down, just looking at, I guess, some of these names, um, someone like a, a Mark Anthony K. It just feels like it's something where, given his club form, Again, I st- it just feels like before he could have been a rotational starter. And you just you look at the form, you consider guys like Matish one year. And even if Aiden Morris is able to commit, you'd almost be excited given those guys' age and whatnot, what they could bring long term. Uh, and part of that's Kay's club situation. I think if he was at another club, he would look a lot better. And this is a whole different discussion. But it's also something where it's like we've seen with past play, uh, you know, past players. It's something where there's a line where form and past status and you know level all intersect and for a guy like Kay and with how well Schwanier is playing it feels like that overlap is it's in a very interesting gray zone uh right now 
Otherwise, in terms of other stock downs, Milan Borja, maybe, maybe. But he's he won another title in Serbia. He actually, I think, he had the most clean sheets that he's had in a couple of seasons. He had actually one of his better years there in the Champions League next season. Like it's something where his club form has been fine. Dane St. Clair, Crepo has been injured in St. Clair. Uh, he's been solid for Minnesota. Um, but his numbers are a bit down mainly because the fact that Minnesota is actually defensively competent now, so they're not relying on him to make 18 saves uh, a, a game. So hard to say. Maybe just, like, I guess a guy like, it feels like Kamal Miller just based on how good a guy like Cornelius has been, Hebert coming up, McNaughton. Um, just how his start to the year went with Montreal. He's bounced back with Miami. I, I think that doesn't change much, but just feels like a guy like Kamal Miller isn't maybe... Uh, it feels like he's dipped a bit if we're talking pure value stocks. And from Nick Spirit at Nick Spirit for realistically, when would Daniel Jebison have to make a decision on his national team future? Seems to me he was close to coming to Qatar. Hopefully he doesn't get played like Tamori. Yeah, look, it's something where, you know, it sounds like there were mutual interests in wanting to get Jebison in a camp, especially in that September, November window where it's friendlies, it's free, right? It's a free look at the player. The player gets a free look at the program. I think it's something where now, look, it's competitive games. The thing is with a Nations League, you see the field for uh, a minute, you're cap tied for three years. If you see a Gold Cup squad, not just if you play in the Gold Cup squad, if you're in the Gold Cup squad, the final 23, you are committed permanently, if I'm not mistaken. There's no switches, no three game, nothing. It's too soon for that. He's he's 19. He's playing at the U20 World Cup right now. Like that's a great opportunity. It's like with Jay Herdman and Finn Linder over at, you know New Zealand, two Canadians in the Caps two system. If a country you got to go play in a U20 World Cup, you're not capped. I'd go for it. Like it's something where it's not even allegiances at at that point. It's a chance to play in a World Cup. Jebison helped them qualify. Go get that opportunity, and it's something where revisit in the fall, because then Canada will have a slew of friendlies. Maybe if he's maybe more on board, you give him a look then, see if he's open to the program. Maybe he's playing in the Premier League or, you know, gets a loan back to a club where he's playing regularly, and then it's a whole different discussion. I just think now with the imp- what these the weight of these tournaments where he'd be cap-tied right away if he's in a Gold Cup squad, and you, you add in the, the fact he's at a World Cup right now, that he, he can enjoy that, hopefully go score some goals, and then we'll we'll see what that does to his confidence. And hopefully, Esther Canada, you hope that it leads to him uh, donning the Maple Leaf. And that's all we've got for episode 122 of the Northern Football Podcast. Apologies for any ambient noise that you guys might have heard from the road near my house, but nice to be back in person. Uh, yes. Don't know how many more in person that we'll have, given just where we're all spread across the country. Yes. But uh, it was nice to be back. <laughs>